are in part two of Wisdom for Life. Everyone say that. Wisdom for Life. Wisdom for Life. Everyone is looking for wisdom. I don't know. Are you looking for wisdom? Uh, <laughs> if you're not looking for wisdom and you think you're wise, you're a fool. Yes, you heard your pastor say that from the pulpit. Everyone is looking for wisdom. The recipes for success, for happiness in your marriage, right? In your career, your parenting. Can I get a witness? Right? Even in your fitness. Wisdom is, as simply as I can put it, wisdom is the ability to make right choices. And not just morally or ethically, right? Most of life's choices don't play by the rules. Or we'd have an easy time of it. Most of life's choices don't present themselves, should I have an affair with this person or should I falsify these sales records to keep my job? Uh, They're not just cut and dry moral or ethical questions. Now, there's all kinds of um, morality and ethics, uh, uh, qualities of morality and ethics in life all over, but most of life's choices and decisions don't conform to the rules. They sound like, should I take this job or stay in the one I have? Which church should we belong to? How much screen time should I allow my kids to have? What college should I go to? Should we buy a house or rent? They don't always look like, well, should we move in together before we get married? That may be a a choice of morality or ethics, but the wise choice is, who should you marry? We want to be wise people. Wisdom is knowing how things really work and how things really are. I have a, uh, how many of you are familiar with John Collier? He comes, uh, for those of you who don't know, he's a British-born evangelist. He's been a friend of the church for, you know, probably at least 20 years. Um, He's always a big encouragement to us when he comes. But one of the things I love most about him uh, is I can talk with him about, for an hour, about what seems to me a very complex situation with, you know, people and and teams and all kinds of different dynamics and spiritual things that I'm noticing. And, you know, at the end, he'll, he'll condense it down into one thing and say, what I think you're dealing with is a spirit of opposition in this place and how you need to confront it is this and this is why these things are happening and this is what you need to do about it and when you address it in this way, this is what the reward will be, right? That is an amazing, that's wisdom. You cannot get that in a university. You can't get that uh, just by studying a lot of books, You get that not by just reading and studying the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. You get that by allowing the Proverbs to completely be resident in your heart until you are wise in the spirit. It comes from knowing God, knowing him. Because wisdom is developing competency in the God-ordained patterns of life. Right, You can look out at the outside world, the physical world, and you can see that there are laws and patterns at work. There are laws of gravity, laws of thermodynamics, laws of sound, laws in light. I mean, God is amazing. There is nothing chaotic about creation. Now, we not, may not be able to perceive and understand 
all of the laws and the patterns at work, but we can admit that there are laws and patterns that govern everything that we see in creation. Why is the spiritual world and the world of relationships between people any different? Just because we can't explain everything doesn't mean that there's not a system and a pattern involved to it. Light is a perfect example. We don't really understand light well in a way where we could describe its behavior and its essence in five words or less. Light behaves like a particle sometimes and it behaves like a wave other times. And we can, we can master the use and the function of light. We can use it in fiber optic cables to transfer lots of amounts of information from one place very quickly to another. It's amazing. We know how fast, quote unquote, it goes. Anyone want to quote that for me? 186,000 miles per second. That's six times around the world every second. Okay. You know, I mean, there are things we can know about light, but do we really know why it, it behaves like a particle sometimes and like a wave another? Well, there is a very simple God-ordained explanation, law, and pattern to it. We just don't have the fullness of understanding to describe it. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Now, one of my favorite movies... I'm going to make a movie reference here, is The Matrix, right? Uh, and Neo, Keanu Reeves, not Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, but Neo from The Matrix, he starts to notice patterns in the world that he's living in, and that uh, alerts him to take the blue pill or the red pill. Which pill? Anyone remember? The which one? I can't remember either, but he took the pill. <laughs> he took the pill, and it sent him in to where he started to see how things really were and how things really worked. Now, what was his experience of uh, his life experience in terms of how things worked after he became more and more progressively more aware of how things really were and how things really worked? Did he become weaker or more powerful? It's the same thing. Now, I'm not trying to make that the matrix is just an overlay of the spiritual world and everything that's going on, but what, needless to say that our life and the, the rules and the laws and the patterns that govern how we relate to one another and how we relate to God in, in the spiritual world and also in, in our relationships, there are laws and patterns that are God-ordained. And for us to grow in that knowledge of how things really are and how things really work is really important. And it first starts with, yes, the complexities are real. But one, we have to admit, yes, there are patterns, and two, we can grow in our understanding of them. And so the question is, and I have before you just to start, is how do we become more wise? How do we become? How does one, how does a person become more wise? Well, we could look at the book of Proverbs, right? There's 31 chapters, and I don't know, probably 400 or so verses. Um, but as long as the Proverbs stay on the shelf, they're not making you any more wise. The Proverbs or any of Scripture that would come to make us wise comes when it becomes flesh and dwells within you. It takes up residence and life 
in your heart and your spirit. That's why we find a key and the kind of the theme to this series um, we've been using is Psalm 1. And I encourage you to memorize the first three verses. And uh, it is, um, because it was written in Hebrew, you'll find that uh, it uses, it is the book of, Pro, uh, um, it, is, it is written uh, and it uses um, man, men, he, um, and that's uh, primarily not, it's not relegated to men. If you are a woman, you can read, blessed is the woman who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So um, let's uh, read it together and read it as if it's to you. And it's okay if it gets a little, we talk over the top of each other, but I encourage you to memorize it. So here we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall also not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Amazing promise. There are three warnings, three rewards, and one critical instruction in there that we talked about last week. That we are to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. That means we need to be careful who we listen to. We're not going to stand in the path of sinners. That doesn't mean to stand in the path and try to keep them from going where they're going. It means that, hey, don't just stand around and do the things that everyone else does just because the world does fill in the blank. That's... we. Those things will confuse our soul and our spirit inside. And that we are to not sit in the seat of the scornful. There are many who mock the things of God. They mock the body of Christ and his church. They mock, uh, they mock all kinds of things that are godly. And it's not saying, this scripture is not saying for us not to be friendly or not to be friends with anyone. That's not what it says. What it is saying is don't let your guard down and allow their mockery to harden your heart to God. And so those are the three warnings. The three rewards are about being like a tree that we, are to be, we can be planted, that uh, in, instead we are not going to be blown around like uh, chaff in the wind where our life is chaotic on the inside and blown around by every manner of thinking, every, every philosophy, every feeling, that we can be planted in the things of God, that our, our inner man or our inner woman can be stable and secure in God, and that we are, are going to bring forth f its fruit in its season. An another way of translating that is to say is that we can be fruitful in every season, that there is no circumstance, there's no situation, there's no scenario in which God's fruitfulness cannot come through your life, and that our leaf, that's like shall also shall not wither. That means that our life our inner man, our inner woman, our life, what really makes us us is drought resistant in God. It is resistant to drought and that whatever we do will prosper. I want to focus this morning just for a few minutes on the first warning. Blessed is the man or blessed is the woman who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Ungodly counsel. We have all walked in it. 
And the reason why it says that we walk in counsel is because counsel directs or points us in a direction. And as we continue to walk in a direction over time, we can find ourselves far from home. I know that that's all of us. There's no one in this room that has not walked in, walked away from someone or something and found themselves far from home. And I want to take a look at a passage from, from 1 Kings that really just highlights very simply and easily how to identify ungodly counsel. It'll be a quick checklist of three things that will help us discern what is godly counsel and what is ungodly counsel. So just to, to set up the context of this, this is um, King Solomon had reigned for 40 years. He was a very, he, he asked God for wisdom. God uh, educated him in the things of the spirit and in the words of scripture and helped him to care for um, a, a, you know, a growing nation and nations around the world knew him, King Solomon, and the kingdom for his great wisdom, his understanding of how things really were and how things really worked and how much that was a help and a blessing not only to his own people and the people of the nation of Israel, but of foreign leaders and people in other nations. Um, now, King Solomon wasn't exclusively a godly person. Uh, he, he strayed in his later years and developed uh, and violated some of the things God had asked him to do. He, uh, he, um, he multiplied horses, which is just a way of he created an engine for conquest and war. Um, he multiplied wives. He did not keep himself to the sanctity of his own marriage, but instead um, you know, expanded that definition against what God had shown and asked of the leaders of the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Um, and you can read about all of Solomon's um, great discretions in detail. It, it is written about in the Bible. I don't encourage you to duplicate that. Um, and also he multiplied gold and silver. And that word multiplication is he sought after and made his intentions and his passion and his hunger was about, ended up being a lot about the conquest of war, his, uh, his sexual appetite, and his, uh, his need for money and wealth and prosperity. That wasn't the only things that defined him. He was a great and wise man. I'm just saying that towards the end, things started to get a little off kilter. And so there were witnesses that God raised up both outside of his kingdom and inside of his kingdom that were attempting that God was using to call him back to the righteous path. Um, and one of those was a man named Jeroboam. He was a counselor and an advisor, and he was calling Solomon back to a godly path, and it aroused anger and suspicion and resentment in Solomon, and Solomon drove Jeroboam out, and Jeroboam took hiding in Egypt. Now, after Solomon died, the kingdom went to Rehoboam, his son, and Jeroboam, when he heard that Solomon had died, came back hoping to have a seat and a voice with Rehoboam, again, as a voice of the Lord to call back to godliness. So here is the, uh, here is the passage that we're going to read. 
And Rehoboam, this is Solomon's son, went to Shechem. That was the place where he was going to be um, coronated as king. Went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, because he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. So Rehoboam, so he said to them, Depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him saying, thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them. My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. Then the king answered the people harshly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. In that story, we're going to look at three quick points on identifying ungodly counsel. Because godly counsel was offered, and Rehoboam, it wasn't what he wanted to hear. So he asked somebody else. And the ungodly counsel reaffirmed what he was already telling himself, and he went with it. The first thing to think, the first point is to consider the source. Consider the source. Not all sources and voices are qualified to give you counsel. Advice, on the one hand, he asked the elders, and this has nothing to do with age, it's just people who were, had experience. They walked and advised. They stood before King Solomon in the good years and in some of the bad years towards the end. They knew what following, um, what following God and serving God meant for their nation. And they, um, they gave and offered advice to help and wanted to see Rehoboam turn the hearts of the people to serve them, to take them back to serving God. They were qualified to give counsel. They were qualified to give that advice. They had been in the place. They had hungered and sacrificed and served. Contrast that with the young men he grew up with. 
These were the palace kids of privilege and no responsibility. These were the kids that grew up, hadn't around, they were Rehoboam's pals, his homies at the palace. They were the benefactors of all of the opulence in King Solomon's court. And they had everything to lose if King Rehoboam really turned back to God and nothing to gain by that. They wanted their lifestyle protected. And like us, Rehoboam had a blind spot when it comes to the people that he grew up with. We have a blind spot oftentimes with the folks that we grow up with. They have an unholy line to make us feel certain ways and think certain things, and we listen to them even if it's unsolicited. But that doesn't mean those voices or those sources are qualified. Like Michelle and I, when we were first, when our oldest, when Aaron, our oldest child, was a baby, when we were brand new parents, we did not know what we were doing. And we kind of still don't. Uh, But we really didn't know what we were doing then. And we were, I mean, we ended up having a war of Google searches, right? We'd see Aaron do one thing, he'd spit up this way, he'd look that way, he'd make these sounds, he wouldn't make those sounds, he said these words, he kicked this way, he cried that way, and, you know, we're just searching everything. Well, guess what? Google does not give you wisdom. It just organizes information based on your premise, You may not even be asking the right question. I know we weren't. And uh, we had to get to this point where we're like, what is going on? We, so we agreed and we thought, we we're like, we need to agree on some sources that are credible, that we know that both their intentions, their spirituality, and their science at least is reliable and then all we did, if we, if we were running into things, we looked off that list of sources, and all of a sudden, kind of the chaos in our marriage and our home around those things went down. Why? Because we were considering the source. Consider the source. The next, the next point is to consider the stakes. Don't fall into the trap of wanting to be right more than getting it right. Don't fall into the trap of wanting to be right more than getting it right. Do you think Rehoboam was happy when Jeroboam showed up? Rehoboam has his weight to throw around. He wants to establish himself as as authority. I mean, we see that even on the world stage in geopolitics today. uh, uh, A new leader comes into power anywhere. They want to do something to establish their authority and the tone and the tenor of their administration around the globe. We see that. I mean... I mean, this is a horrific example, but you know Kim Jong-un, right, North Korea? He comes into power after his dad, and he starts killing people left and right to establish the reign of terror so that people would respect him. It wasn't because he was wise, right? Rehoboam was not a man of accomplishment. He was a man of privilege. And he came in, and he wanted to throw his weight around and establish himself as king. And Jeroboam was an obstacle to that. 
And he wanted to demonstrate that he was king. He wanted to demonstrate that he was the grand poobah, the head honcho in charge. But we need to consider when we are faced with something where our our passions or our feelings are aroused in in those kinds of ways, that are we really just trying to prove a point or is the kingdom at stake? Because in Rehoboam thought he was proving a point. He was establishing his rule. But the kingdom was at stake. The kingdom, the whole kingdom. But like Rehoboam, we often are very short-sighted. We want to be right more than get it right. And I've also found that, you know, uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 18 says, plans, our plans or our choices, what we set out to do, are established by counsel. And then it says, so make war only with wise guidance. Now, making war is not really about violence or making war in that context. It says, the bigger the decision, the more counselors you need. The bigger the decision, the more, the, the higher the stakes, the more counsel, the more advice, the more counselors we need. All throughout Proverbs, you say there is, there is wisdom, there is safety, there is, um, there is fruitfulness, there's prosperity, all in the voice of many counselors. But we do it backwards sometimes. The higher the stakes, the more secretive and less accountable we want to be. Right? I had a friend I've known since high school, and he walked in, uh, visited me at work. Um, this was a while back, and he announced to me, he said, hey, Jeff, I want to tell you something. He closed the door. He comes in, and he says, I just wanted to let you know that uh, my wife and I are getting a divorce. I, I, not, I mean, I have known him for years. And what, and in my head, like, it takes me back. I'm thinking, what kind of friendship did we even have? That you would do the nuclear option without even talking to me first. Right? We, 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 have, we have rehearsed all of these things and meditated on all these things inside. And we don't want to tell anyone except for the people who will answer and tell us what we're already thinking and what we're already feeling so we can create an echo chamber to justify what we already want to do anyway. That's what we do. When it, the, the scripture says, the higher the stakes, the more counselors you need. Why? Well, do you think it's very comfortable to be that vulnerable with the counselors about whether you're struggling at something or whether you're facing difficulties at things? But there is wisdom, there is safety. Does it, you can hear the rewards of being planted like a tree. There is safety, there is, there's fruitfulness, there's drought resistance, right, in the wisdom of many counselors. And the last thing, consider the source, consider the stakes, consider the spirit. Ultimately, we need to not, well, don't fall into the trap of letting your feelings become a guide instead of a gauge. Right? Our feelings are from God. They alert us to where our heart is. 
not where we should go. They are godly. Our emotions are godly. God has emotions and very strong ones. They're all over this book. They're all over the life of Jesus. But our emotions are a gauge. They're a thermometer to tell us, hey, we're running a fever. Not telling us where to go. When the wisdom of the world is all follow your heart. Except that's not in the Bible. It's not in the life of Jesus. He followed what he heard his father say. We walk in the word. We walk by faith. We walk in the wisdom and the counsel of God. And our feelings will follow. They will tell us where we are. They will help us to engage and connect with God over where we are and who we are. But they are not a guide that tells us where to go. Does the advice you're listening to stir up suspicion and anger? Leading you to ever more complicated conspiracy theories? Does the advice feed your selfish desires? Does the advice only confirm what you are already telling yourself? Let me tell you, godly counsel does not sound like you. Godly counsel does not sound like your own voice and what you've been telling yourself. Or you wouldn't need it. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds, and that word heeds is to listen and do what the counselor says. He who heeds counsel is wise. Did you know? We always think what we do is either right or justified. It's either right or it's wrong, but it's justified because fill in the blank. It's either right or justified. Everything we do, everything that you do and have done, you either feel it was right or it was justified until you come face to face with God's word in his presence. And it's only through the conviction and the correction and the teaching and the training and the meditation in God's word that we leave what's old behind and we walk and we start to step into what is really new. Trust the advice that calls you to joy, that calls you to sacrifice, that calls you to humility, and calls you to service. That sounds like Jesus. And ultimately, godly counsel helps us to follow Christ, the true wisdom. By connecting our meditation, what we, what, what we are thinking about when, our, when we're by ourselves and all that we're learning from God's word, it connects our meditation on God's word to life application. It helps us to walk it out so we can walk in a direction that's godly. And it, godly counsel also helps us to follow Christ by revealing where we need to start meditating on God's word where we haven't before. And my question to you is, is why when I say that, don't we rejoice passionately over it? Because really, in many cases, our theology of practice, meaning what our actions tell us about what we believe, is different than what we say. We say that Jesus is the true wisdom. We say that before, that, you know, in the heavens were made, that God made the heavens and the earth and constructed them all and everything in it by wisdom. 
We say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. We say all these things, yet the way we live tells a different story. Strangely, we seem ready to learn how to live from everyone or anyone but Jesus in the practical, everyday things of life, in how we relate to our spouse, how we train up our children, how we respect and we serve the companies and the schools that we work for or that we learn from, the way we handle our relationships, we go everywhere but Jesus. We are ready to believe that the latest studies have more to teach us about love and sex than he does, that Tony Robbins knows more about success and personal finance than he does, that Dr. Phil knows more about relationships than he does, that Debbie Godfrey of Positive Parenting knows more about parenting than he does, that Carl Sagan and Bill Nye are more authoritative sources on the cosmos than he is. We are losing any sense of the difference between information and wisdom. Because let me tell you, whatever you spontaneously Look for, wherever you spontaneously look for information when, any, when something happens on how to live shows how you truly feel and who you are truly confident in. Nothing more clearly demonstrates our belief that Jesus as a teacher is irrelevant to our real everyday lives than where we search in Google for our answers. Yet the wisdom of God is perfectly communicated to us in Jesus Christ. How to live, how to love, how to lead, how to serve, how to resolve conflict, how to think, how to feel, how to address injustice, how to relate to money, how to prioritize, how to manage time, how to work. That's why we are to meditate on Jesus, meditate on his law day and night, day and night. He is wisdom. He is inseparable from God's word. In fact, he is the word and the word is him. That word comes from the, the, the word logos, which is translated sometimes wisdom and sometimes word. Let me read for you John chapter 1 as wisdom instead of the word. Because they're really the same root word. In the beginning was the wisdom. And the wisdom was with God. And the wisdom was God. The wisdom, meaning the knowledge of how everything really is and how everything really works was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without wisdom, nothing was made that was made. In him, Jesus, the word, the wisdom was life and the life was the light to all people and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend it. We are to meditate. Jesus is the wisdom of God communicated to us. And there is no difference between Jesus the man and Jesus the word. They are both Jesus the wisdom. We need to be people that grow in wisdom.